I don't know about you, but whenever I am trying to learn something new, or I'm, I remember working on homework assignments or taking tests, and I went and I asked a teacher or a parent for help, and they, what they provided wasn't helpful, I would get pretty frustrated. Anybody relate ever? Yeah. You're like, no, I asked you this and you gave me that and somehow that was supposed to be helpful. Well, you're not alone because today's account as we go into John chapter 11 recalls a time when some of Jesus' closest friends asked for help and the help that he was willing to give wasn't quite what they desired, at least not on the surface. And the good news is that because Jesus reigns over everything, as we're going to see in verse 25, even over death, the reality is that it's His call in the way that He operates. And I don't think it's just because we're Westerners, we don't like that. I think it's just human nature that we would rather have it be our way rather than His way. But the reality is that we're going to see this morning is that we can trust Him, that whatever we face is actually for our good. And it's actually for our ultimate good. Even though His methods don't make sense in the moment, this morning we're going to see that He has our ultimate good in mind in the way that He prioritizes things, in the way that He purposes to do things, and even in the way that He proceeds when He does things. If you remember from Isaiah 55, Isaiah said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. See, He's God, and that means that it's His call, not ours. And in fact, the way that he operates is much, much different than the way that we do. But because he's sovereign and he's good, he can be trusted. So let's take a, a look at the way he prioritizes. I'm going to simply walk through 1 through 44. And actually, I'm going to go into 45 just for a real brief second. But 1 through 44, and just try to help you understand what John is bringing forward. And so, John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. See, John's really specific here. It's not just a man that isn't named who was sick, because that's what we see. You know, you got this guy's son or this person's daughter, no name. No, John says that there's this one guy from this one village who's sick. And it's not just any village. It happens to be the same village of two sisters who are important characters in the earthly life of Jesus, Martha and Mary. But see, in a linear reading of this gospel, you don't have a clue. We don't have a clue who Martha and Mary are. It's an interesting way to write. Like, I'm going to be very specific about who these people are, but you don't have any idea who these people are. See, John's writing because he's distinctly aware 
of the connection between this account and when we actually learn about Martha and Mary. And so he actually mentions the latter account to help us connect the significance. Verse 2, he says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now that's the setup of the story about Lazarus. That's it. It says, So the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. See, up to this point, though, there's also not anything about this guy. He's brand new to us, and yet John records the sisters describing Lazarus as a guy whom Jesus loves. I think it's fair to say that somehow there was an interaction between Jesus and Lazarus before this occurred. Safe to say? And and see, that's why I'm grateful that John in his final sentence of the gospel says, now... There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. See, that's helpful because it lets us know that there's more that happened than what we just read. So we have to think about the totality of the gospel as we're looking at the particulars of the gospel. See, the gospel account is not meant to be a verbatim, linear account of the life of Jesus. And while there's many details contained, the ones that are contained were never refuted at the time of their writing, which means we can trust it. And what's been preserved is designed to be instructive for us, and so we need to pull out of it. So what are we to learn? Well, according to this, the way things that play out What we see is that Jesus prioritizes time differently than we would. It's His call. So let's try something. You guys ready to participate? Yes? Maybe? Okay, this is, it's not going to be a Bueller, Bueller moment. Whenever I ask, whose call is it? You all are going to respond boldly, it's His call. Okay, you got that? We got one who's um, with me. Let's give it a shot. Whose call is it? It Hey, you guys can do this. This is good. Shapes, yes. So as we move into verse 4, we're going to see how it's Jesus' call in the way that he prioritizes his actions. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified or may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. See, when you really get me sitting there go, wait, 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 wait. He loved this woman and her brother and her sister And when he heard the news, he simply stayed in the same spot. Now, at the beginning I said, hey, if you ask for help and nobody gives you help, what happens to you? You get frustrated. That's exactly what happened here. They send word saying, hey, we need your help. This guy is ill. And he says, yeah, I got you. I'm just going to hang out with my friends for a bit. 
I know as parents, when we ask for the garbage to be taken out or for something to happen, and they said, yeah, I got you, and they keep doing what they're doing, I get a little frustrated. Parents, you with me? Yeah, okay. See, it just doesn't connect. And while Jesus has the power to heal Lazarus, he chooses to stay. It doesn't make sense. Whose call is it? Well done. Now, while the first time you read this story it doesn't make sense, when you make your way through the gospel, you start to make sense. It starts to become clear because he prioritizes in different ways. So that's going to be the second thing. He has our good in mind. So he stays where he is because it's about the way he prioritizes his time with his disciples at that point, was more important than going because he had a greater purpose. Because he has, the second thing is that it's his call in the way that he purposes. Look at verse 7. Then, after this, so what's after this? It's not after he received word, it's after they stayed there two days. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Who are they concerned for? The teacher. What we see there is they're not concerned about the guy who's ill. They're concerned about the teacher. Hey, you're going to go back there because they're going to try to kill you. They're keenly aware of the religious and the political climate that they're in. It's not like they just got across the Jordan River. How do I know that? Because back in chapter 10, verse 40, it says he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And here's the phrase, and there he remained. If you remain somewhere, is it a short period of time? Is it like camping? No, it's there for a while. That's where you're going to stay for a bit. So they've now gotten comfortable because they're no longer in the midst of chaos. Anybody like being comfortable without being in the midst of chaos? Yeah, yeah. So you can relate to these guys. And so it doesn't make sense to them that he's going to go back where there's danger. But it's not their call. Whose call is it? Look how Jesus responds to the concern they've expressed. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to, him, to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, if I'm a disciple, that was not a helpful response at all. Like, I look at that like, really? Like, okay, so dark and night and what? But see, here's what Jesus is really saying, friends. What are you afraid of? See, he already said, I am the light of this world. And it means that there's nothing to fear. And what he's saying is there's nothing to fear, including physical threats. 
He's saying, I love Lazarus and his family, and I intend to teach you something through this because I have a greater purpose behind this, and I'd actually like you to come with me because I have a greater purpose than you could ever imagine. But as with me, probably with most of you, the disciples are a bit slow to understand. We often operate out of fear. And so Jesus gets very specific. Verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, guys, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. See, Jesus graciously pulls back the curtain and reveals one of the underlying purposes behind Lazarus' death, that the disciples may believe. And as Thomas hears this, while he might not fully understand, and despite his underlying fear, he seems to trust his rabbi. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. <laughs> it's an interesting response. See, Jesus, who's already worked miracle upon miracle, just explained that there's a deeper perspective purpose behind Lazarus's death, and yet Thomas responds in a way that has a dual connotation, which is one of the reasons why John often calls him the twin. See, in one sense, this could be taken as a courageous response. I was thinking of my brother, Jason. It's kind of like Aragorn. Rallying defenders at the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings. Right? So despite the size of this approaching army, he says to them, ride with me, ride out and meet them. We're not going to wait here, we're going to go to them, we're going to go to danger. But I actually think that Thomas is saying, hey, this guy's nuts. We're going to go back there, I, I, we're going to die too. And see, we know from a later gospel account that while in the upper room, Thomas continued to wrestle with persistent doubt. See, Jesus just said that the purpose of going back to Judea was that they would believe. That means that they weren't there yet. They didn't believe at that point. They didn't fully understand. They needed something more. And so Thomas, I don't think, is acting out of courage. He's basically inferring his doubt without exposing it. He's letting the teacher know, hey, yeah, I'm not sure I can trust you yet. There's times that I'm in the same spot. Lord, I don't know if I can trust you with this. And I appreciate this account because it gives me encouragement. See, there's times when I have distinctly questioned the Lord's motives and things. You know, when Garrett was killed, I questioned the Lord's purpose. Three months later, when Nathan was almost killed as he hit the tree, I questioned the Lord's purpose. 
two months after that, when Jason called me to let me know he was diagnosed with ALS, I questioned the Lord's purpose. I just kept saying, why? What do you have in this? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Are there experiences you've faced in your life where you've questioned the Lord's motives? See, it's okay. Jesus understands. See, what's encouraging about this passage is that Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas. In fact, Jesus has this in mind when in the upper room after his death and his resurrection, he kindly offers Thomas the opportunity to touch the wounds in his hands and put his fingers in the scar on his side. See, Jesus understands doubt. He understands your doubt. And he says it's okay. It's okay to doubt. See, Jesus meets us where we're at. He has our good in mind when He brings things about. And this account reveals the purpose is that we would believe in Him. That's our ultimate good. And so that brings us to the third truth revealed this morning is that Jesus has our good in mind in the way that He proceeds. So look with me at verse 17. Now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. See, Martha rushes out to meet Mary, sorry, to meet Jesus. This is common for her. See, when Jesus was in their home, Martha's the one rushing about. Mary remained at Jesus' feet. See, on the surface, though, Martha's statement seems to some degree share some trust and confidence in the Lord. Right? I know that if you had been here, you'd heal him, but even now, if you ask anything, like you'll do it. But she doesn't know what that do it is. In light of her personality, it seems that Martha desires control. I believe she's kindly complaining to the Lord. She doesn't understand what Jesus had prioritized. She's not aware of Jesus' purpose, for she wasn't on the other side of the Jordan when Jesus shared with his disciples that it was so that they would believe. She's concerned about one thing, her current situation. Have you ever found yourself praying, Lord, do you know what I'm going through? Do, do you care what I'm going through? You could have done something to prevent what I'm going through. You know, you, you still could make things better. And then you give the way that you think he could make things better. You ever found yourself giving Jesus the way how to make things better? See, I know when I find myself praying, 
you know, when I learn of marriages that are in great struggle or significant physical illness with a family, or when I was talking with the father of the 17-year-old who's a local pastor who, when she died of a heart attack, I found myself asking why. I doubt the Lord's purposes because I don't understand them. And yet in my mind, I know the truth that's revealed here, that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are greater than our thoughts, but I still plead, Lord, You could do something. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had, not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus responds by revealing what he purposes to do. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. How many of you have asked Jesus to understand what the future holds? Right? You're saying, hey, Lord, if I just knew what was going to happen, then I could accept what I'm walking through better. Uh Uh-uh. It's right here. Her response to this revelation is an indication of her doubt. Martha said to him, yeah, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So given her frame of reference, what she knows, she now has the answer to what Jesus just revealed to her. She has no clue about Jesus' power. Friends, you don't have any idea about the power of Jesus. Like, in your mind, what you think is the best outcome? Uh Uh-uh. See, she believes that there's a day in the distant future when Lazarus will be restored. But she reveals that she doubts what the Lord can do in the current situation. And instead of condemning her for doubting, he gently points to his sovereignty, saying, you may not understand, but I'm sovereign over all things. I have particular priorities and particular purposes and particular ways of proceeding that are way beyond your comprehension. I have your ultimate good in mind. You can trust me. See, the way that Jesus proceeds doesn't seem to make sense to Martha. But whose call is it? That's right. See, it's his call in the way that he has a purpose behind the things we experience and the way that he brings them about. So look at verse 25 to see how he responds to her expression of doubt. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Your answer to that question, friends, is the most important thing about you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus will never die? Martha responds in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. See, while they were still across the Jordan, 
Jesus said that he was glad that he wasn't there so that the disciples would believe. And here before, upon their arrival, in this brief account with Martha, before any miracle occurs, Jesus is giving his disciples a first-hand account of what belief looks like. See, we believe not because of what Jesus did. We believe because of who Jesus is. See, she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Here's a woman whose brother has died, and the rabbi is asking her if she believes. Do you think that her response would serve as an encouragement to the disciples? Uh, he just told us that this is what he's going to do, and here it's happening in front of me. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I am not sure why it says the teacher is calling for you. There's no account of Jesus doing that. So Martha responds. She runs and gets married and says, Hey, the teacher wants to see you. Maybe it's the only thing Martha knew she could do or what she could say to get Mary to leave the house and to come to the tomb where Lazarus' body was placed. See, I know that there were times when our children were younger when they would run downstairs and say, Mom needs you upstairs. Just because they wanted their brother or sister upstairs. And it was the only way they could get them upstairs. Because if they asked, hey, come on upstairs, no. I don't know the reason. But it worked. And when Mary walks up to Jesus, she has the exact same conversation that her sister had with him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She expresses the same confidence that Jesus' power to heal, just as Martha did. Is that wrong? No. It's what she knows. I would argue that it's actually good to say to Jesus, I know that you would do this because you're capable of doing this. See, they're unaware up to this point that he has the power over everything, including death. They haven't seen it. They haven't witnessed it. They've seen and heard about a variety of miracles, but in their minds, raising someone from the dead is out of the realm of possibility. Friends, let's say you've been walking with the Lord for a while. And you're with a brother or sister in Christ that's either newer or less mature in the faith. 
And they don't seem to understand the th things of the faith the same way. Is that okay? Yeah. According to this passage, how are we to respond when we find ourselves in that space? Condemn them and call them out? No. Martha doesn't condemn Mary for asking the same thing. I would probably be saying, Shh, I've already asked that question. <laughs> Don't go there. Jesus doesn't condemn Mary for not having faith in something that's beyond her comprehension. Man, this gives me encouragement that He doesn't condemn me when I don't have faith for something that's beyond my comprehension. See, Jesus meets us where we're at. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Here we see Jesus' care and concern on full display. Even though he knows the outcome, even though the purpose behind their pain is for their ultimate good, that they would believe in him, he still hurts because they hurt. They knew his power, or at least a portion of his power. And just like Martha and Mary, they were confident that he could have done something but it's simply not our call in the way that He does things. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for He's been dead four days. See, Martha says, in effect, Lord, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Seemingly unfazed, though, by her outburst, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. There's his ultimate purpose. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Friends, whose call is it? 
See, it's his call in the way that he prioritizes, in the way he purposes, in the way he proceeds. But no natural man would instruct folks to roll away a stone that's been placed over a grave four days earlier. Right? See, can you remember how he healed the official son that we saw back in chapter 4? He just said, hey, your son's healed. And in the same way as when he created the universe and everything in it, he simply speaks it into existence. See, Martha and Mary communicate distinct faith in this chapter and doubt. And Jesus is saying it's okay to doubt. Because I'm sovereign over everything. My words have power that you cannot imagine. This account, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, friends, is a picture of us being called into life. See, when Jesus called us out of darkness, we were given new spiritual life. He called you by name. And when Lazarus came out of the tomb and he's called, he needed help from those around him. Jesus commanded them, unbind him. See, in our case, others are instructed to come alongside of us to help us live freely as new creatures. Now imagine the folks who are standing there witnessing this. Though we don't have an account of what they were thinking, it's not difficult to imagine it. How likely would anyone want to fulfill the command to unbind him? How many members of your household look forward to cleaning up after the dog when it vomits in the house? What if there's a dead animal in the window well? Is everybody like jumping in together to kind of pick this thing up? Or is it, no, 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 who's first? Asking folks to unbind a man who's been dead for four days, who just walked out of a tomb and should be decomposing, is way worse than a dead animal in your window well. The guy was dead. And now he's moving. Who in their right mind is going to say, I'm first to help? No one. That is a huge ask. Now, the only difference in the instruction to us is that we're called to help others live unbound spiritually. It's just as hard. It's as big an ask. See, we were born sinners. Many of us spent an entire lifetime in rebellion. All of us spent all of our lives in rebellion against the creator of the universe. Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And he doesn't stop there because he goes on saying for the wages, right? The result, the penalty for sin is death, spiritual death. But from Genesis 3, we know that sin also ushered in physical death. But Paul also says that one act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus' perfect life, not deserving death, being crucified on a cross and overcoming death, that act of righteousness leads to being set free for those who believe. For those who believe, sin no longer has dominion. And that means death no longer reigns. Those who believe are under grace. See, we've been called out of a tomb by Jesus by name. Praise God. And as his followers, we are instructed to come alongside, to come along one another and help us live as free men and women. Unbound from sin. We are set free to live as we are originally designed to live and yet we need help just as Lazarus did when he was called out of the tomb. See, there's often patterns of sin that we need to be helped out of whether it's ways of speaking or responding or thinking or listening or looking. The question for each of us is, am I willing to roll up my sleeves and help my brothers and sisters in Christ live unbound? I know I wouldn't have been the first person offering to go and unbind Lazarus. But that's the question for us. Am I willing to go and help? I want to wrap up this morning by helping us realize a variety of purposes that this account serves. First, friends, this account recorded by John is a miracle that really happened. A man who had been dead in a tomb for four days was brought back to life simply by Jesus speaking. His call is more powerful than you could imagine. In the midst of helping us understand the power of Jesus, the Lord uses this passage to establish a few additional things. Yeah, His timing is up to Him and and his purposes are up to him, and the way that he operates are up to him. But you may have missed it, or overlooked it, or not thought about it, but this is a direct fulfillment of the teaching we found last week in Jason's message. Look back at 1014. Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. See, Lazarus knew Jesus' voice while he was dead. He was called from death to life and he proceeds from the tomb. Those of us here who are in Christ were called from spiritual death and when he called, we knew his voice. And when he called us, we responded and we proceeded from our tomb. See, his 
purposes are way beyond our own. He ordained that Lazarus would die so that many would believe. And though we'll expand more upon it next week, verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Jesus says on the other side of the Jordan, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you would believe. And now, a couple days later, belief occurs. In a recent national panel, it was uncovered that there are unprecedented levels of depression and hopelessness. I know we have a couple of counselors in the room, those that are studying counseling. The percentages of increase in depression is staggering. It's up 70% from what it was in 2015. See, hopelessness, though, isn't new. For Mary and Martha, the situation they were in was hopeless. They said, if you would have been here. They're hopeless. In Christ, friends, we have hope. And I don't want the obvious to slip by. For Lazarus, he tangibly, practically, and experientially knows that every day he had to live was a blessing. It was all on account of the love of the Savior, calling him out. I don't think it's too far a stretch to believe that when he tasted food again, it was delightful. Or when he walked again after being in the grave four days, he relished being able to walk, being able to see his sisters. I imagine that as he heard singing, he didn't hold back to join in. He knew what it was like to be dead and then made alive. And he knew he was alive because of Christ. He could say without a doubt, as Paul did to the Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I would imagine that his gratitude was way off the charts. I believe it's why we see Mary wash Jesus' feet with expensive perfume in the next chapter. Here's the person whose brother was raised from the dead, and what does she do out of gratitude? Anything she can. She saw Lazarus' joy. She's filled with immeasurable gratitude because her brother was brought back from the dead. Now, for some of us, we had similar experiences. We can look back to a time or a point in time and a place when everything changed for us, when the Lord called us. And for some of us, we were probably likely to share the good news that we've been changed. And for some of us, we were probably pretty annoying in doing so. At Tiffany saying, yeah. I know my friends looked at me like, dude, you're nuts. I don't think there was anyone in Judea at the time who was unaware of a dead man being brought back. They didn't need social media. They didn't need a camera. Like, everybody was talking about it. 
And Lazarus could say, I was dead and then I wasn't. That's it. I was raised from the dead, whatever the circumstance. Doesn't matter what we're facing now, it'll be fine because I was dead. And now I'm not. We're short on food? Doesn't matter. I'm alive. Friends, it's no more complicated for us. It's not. And yet our own conversion is often at risk of becoming too familiar. We run the risk of thinking that no one wants to hear it anymore. Or maybe we're no longer amazed by it, so we stop sharing it. Brothers and sisters, it's the same miracle. It's the same power. We were one way and then we weren't. I sense that the most effective tactic of the enemy in getting us to stop sharing the good news is to cause us to forget how great a miracle it is. And I would imagine for those who are raised in a Christian home and came to faith early, it's even easier for the enemy to hinder our view of the miracle. Because if you haven't had all these life experiences where things are really bad and you can point to that spot that says, I was changed, you can say, I don't feel like I was ever dead. If Lazarus never felt like he was dead, would he rejoice? No. And I think that's why God in His sovereignty chose to include this story. That we would be amazed by the miracle of rebirth. That even if our own story didn't include this massive conversion... Because His words have power, we would be amazed by the truth of rebirth. Because when we're amazed by the truth of rebirth, others will know about it. If others don't know your story, it's not about you sharing the story. Ask the Lord to get a vision of what rebirth in you looks like. You won't be able to hold back. You won't be able to stop talking about it if you understood that you were dead and now you're alive. I've asked the worship team to sing a particular song as a response. If you guys want to come up, it's Death Was Arrested. That's what happened here. Lazarus had died. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Death was arrested. Death had been defeated. Death had been overcome. If you are in Christ, you will never experience death as Lazarus did. Or as Jesus did. We were already in the tomb spiritually. And Jesus called us by name. 
and new life began. It's a miracle. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the miracle of new birth. Thank you that in your goodness and your kindness, you have called us by name. Lord, we were one way and then we were not. We were dead and then we were alive. Lord, your word says that while we were enslaved to sin, out of that darkness you called us and we've been transferred into your kingdom. Lord, give us a new vision, a new understanding. Lord, enrapture our hearts in such a way that that we can't hold back sharing the truth. Lord, give us a heart to talk about your compassion that was displayed towards Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Give us a heart to share the compassion that you've displayed towards us. And help us to be compassionate helping those that you have called to new life live unbound, free, now able to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.